is today uh, we are concluding our series made to relate now next week we are starting uh, a new series going through the book of genesis uh, now you might have a lot of questions as a lot of people do about the first couple of chapters in genesis and so next week we are starting with genesis chapter one and let me just say this i think it's gonna be a great series i think we're gonna learn what's actually going on in the text and so i would encourage you to be here i also uh, i know we might say this often would encourage you to invite a friend there's a lot of questions about what christians actually believe what genesis is actually saying and so I think you'll be encouraged if you uh, join us. And so uh, that being said, today uh, we are finishing our series uh, called Made to Relate. And really, other than last week when we talked about marriage, we've been talking about things that aren't, aren't typically preached on. We've preached on singleness and friendship. Uh, and today we are ending our series by talking about divorce. Now, I know when I say that, that's a heavy thing. Many of us have been impacted by it. Perhaps you yourself have been divorced. And so let me just say this as I begin. I encourage you to stick with me today. What we're going to do is we're going to read the text and then apply it at the end. But stick with me as we see what Jesus actually has to say about this topic. You might have heard things, had things said to you that aren't actually scriptural. And so we're going to see what Jesus said. Now, as we begin, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10 this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Last year, we preached through the gospel of Mark, and it was about a year ago that we actually hit this text. And so today is going to be very similar uh, to what we talked about uh, last year as we look at what Jesus says about divorce. Let me give you some context as you turn there. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, there's a black one. It'll be page 897 uh, right in front of you. Here's the context. Uh, in the ancient world, uh, Jewish people, as well as really everybody, uh, marriage uh, was seen not as an equal union of, e of the mutual benefit between the husband and the wife, is what we talked about last week as we looked at Ephesians chapter 5, uh, but, but rather it was an institution whose primary purpose, at least practically how it was played out, was the establishment of family, children, legacy, inheritance, legal rights, all that sort of thing. So uh, women, at least legally speaking, were viewed essentially as any other property. Now, this does not mean that husbands and wives didn't love each other, didn't care for each other, their kids. I'm not saying that, but in terms of how things played out, men were the head of the household, legally everything ran through them, uh, inheritance, you know, retribution, trials, all these sorts of things. And so the woman, really her status in society was placed, was based on a man, whether her husband or her father or anything like that. Uh, everything went through the men. And so legally they were viewed as property. In other words, men could do with their wives as they wanted. And so this is where Jesus is on the scene. And today in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is going to be confronted with some religious leaders. And we're going to see not only what Jesus says, says about divorce, but what a marriage was actually supposed to look like. And so here's what it says in Mark chapter 10. It starts out by saying this in verse 1. He, talking about Jesus, set out from there and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. The crowds converged on him again, as was his custom, and as was his custom, he taught them. So what's going on here in the Gospel of Mark is at this point, Jesus is continuing his journey towards Jerusalem. Uh, it's not necessarily going a straight shot to Jerusalem, but really all these places he's going to, it's going to be his last time there before he heads to Jerusalem and is crucified. And so he's, as always, a lot of people have heard of things that he's done. A lot of people are crowding around Jesus. He begins to teach them. And then it says this in verse 2. Some Pharisees, which were some religious leaders, came to test him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? 
So the Pharisees, again, if you've been reading the Gospel of Mark and all the Gospels, you know that the Pharisees are often showing up to test Jesus. They're not genuinely curious, but they want to see if they can get him to say the wrong thing uh, so that they can try him, so that they can say, see, this guy is a false prophet. Uh, They're trying to find a way in this instance to show that he actually opposes the law of Moses, and so he should not be listened to. So their question are, what are the lawful, and they're not talking about like Roman law, but they're talking about Old Testament, the Mosaic law, what, where is a divorce permitted? Or what are the legal, in terms of Israelite law, uh, grounds for divorce? When is divorce acceptable? Now, this question is a tricky question because different sects or streams of Judaism taught different things. There wasn't unanimous agreement on this. Now, all the things that they taught found their root in Deuteronomy chapter 24. So I'm going to just read Deuteronomy chapter 24, and you're going to see the Pharisees are going to use this as their text to ask Jesus. So here's what Deuteronomy chapter 24 in the Old Testament says. It says, if a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate. If after leaving his house, she goes and becomes another man's wife and the second man hates her, writes her a divorce certificate, hands it to her and sends her away from his house. Or if he dies, the first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she has been defiled because that would be detestable to the Lord. Now, let me just say this. I know there's a lot in, this, in those verses that are confusing, that might rub us the wrong way. Again, this was written in a context and a time where they had different assumptions than we do. Today, we're not going to get into all of what's actually being said in Deuteronomy chapter 24, but I want to focus on the first verse. When it talks about when, when a wife or when a woman does something indecent. Now, the question is the English word that we have translated indecent, but the question is, what, what constitutes indecent? So for the more conservative groups of Judaism, it meant only adultery. Only if she commits adultery is it legally okay, according to the law, for a man to divorce his wife. Uh, The more liberal groups theologically would say things as simple as finding someone else more attractive or simply not liking something that your wife did, how she ran the house, how she interacted with the kids, whatever it was. It was was really ambiguous, and so it was really whatever you decide, if you think there's something that you don't like, well, that's good enough because, again, men could really do whatever they wanted to legally. So the question here is that every strand of Judaism believes that some things made divorce legal. The question is, what actually was it? And so here is a great question to trap Jesus. What does Jesus say is legal and see if they actually agree? And so here's Jesus's response. Jesus says this, he replied to them in verse three, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. This is what Moses said that we could do. And so again, Jesus asked them what they think. They respond to referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24, which we read the first couple of verses right there. And and notice, however, they don't say what grounds divorce is permitted, but simply that it is permitted. So since it is permitted, when can we, how can we actually do it? But what they're saying is that Moses permitted divorce papers or divorce certificates to be written. And so we're allowed to do it. And what circumstances do you say it is 
permitted. Now, as a side note, when it talks about diverse, divorce, divorce, something, those papers and those certificates, here's what this typically meant. It typically was a repayment of a dowry or something to that effect. If, uh, in other words, this certificate also ensured that the woman cannot be accused of adultery if she remarries because she was divorced by her husband since her husband dissolved their relationship. So again, typically there was some sort of repayment of the dowry to help the woman at least financially start on her feet and to say that she has not committed adultery if she remarries because her husband divorced her. So this is what the Pharisees say. The Pharisees say, well, Moses said we could do it. And then Jesus responds by saying this in verse five. But Jesus told them, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. In other words, because of the hardness of hearts, Moses made a concession. But that doesn't, as we're going to see here, doesn't change the intention of marriage. Just because there are allowances for it, it doesn't mean that that's actually the goal. And what Jesus is trying to get at here is that looking for the exceptional measures in marriage when a marriage fails and no longer works does not help you discover what the true meaning and intention of marriage was, right? In other words, trying to find out when it is okay to get out of a marriage is not the attitude you want to partake in as you are getting married. It's like, for example, um, learning to prepare a crash landing in an airplane. If you're a pilot, that's a good thing to do. But if that's your main focus, you're not going to learn how to actually fly a plane, Right? Or learning how to execute like an onside kick or a half-court buzzer beater at the end of a game to try to win the game. Those are great things to know how to do. But if you spend the majority of your time on that, you won't learn how to actually win the game. Right? What Jesus is getting at is that the intention for marriage cannot be learned from a text about lawful divorce. They're like, Jesus, how can you get out of it? And Jesus is like, this is not the point. We should not be focusing on how we should get out of it. Instead... Here's what we should be focusing on. He says this, if we continue reading in verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Verse 7, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. In other words, what Jesus is doing here is he's deriving from Scripture. This is Genesis chapter 1 and 2, which is what we're going to get at the next couple of weeks. He's deriving from Scripture the intent for marriage himself. And so he quotes Genesis about why God created it. And here, Jesus is not deducing a conclusion from Scripture like the scribes trying to figure out, well, how does this actually play out? But rather declares God's will over and against what is lawful. In other words, it's not about what we can do to divorce our spouse. It's about what we should do or why why marriage was created in the beginning, right? So for Jesus and therefore God, uh, marriage is a God-ordained covenantal union between a man and a woman, further argued by the fact that the new husband and the new wife, when they become married, will no longer be bound to their parents, but they will be bound to one another, that their new relationship takes precedence over their relationship to their parents. And so what's interesting here is that in this exchange, and twice in verse 2 and in verse 4, the Pharisees are asking about the exceptions to marriage. When can you get 
get out of it. And twice in verse 8 and verse 9, Jesus declares that God's original will for marriage, which is that one flesh that should not be separated. That is the goal. Now, here's why this matters. This was radically different from their cultural understanding and belief about marriage, right? That man is legally over the wife and is pretty much the sole deciding factor on if their marriage stays together. It was pretty much the man's decision only. Again, in ancient Judaism and all cultures, a woman's place largely depended on her relationship to a man in society, be it her father, husband, or her son. And so Jesus here is doing something radically different. Here, he expresses something much different, that God in his original uh, creation and his original intent for marriage, that a woman is not a man's subject, but his equal. Now, I want to point out something here. Jesus, when he's talking about this, this is not his idea. This isn't like Jesus is the loving New Testament and the God of the Old Testament is mean and wrathful. Jesus' idea from this comes from Genesis, that male and female are distinct with different qualities, different behaviors. They look different, but are equal in worth and value and therefore are equal in the marriage relationship. That's what Jesus is saying, and he's quoting scripture to back it up. And so here you see the greatest difference between between Jesus and the religious leaders and the culture that they are all living in, right? But by giving husband principal control over his wife, which is how it played out in the ancient world, the Jews in all ancient cultures, divorce policy essentially made man the Lord, if you will, over the marriage relationship. He decides how it's going and he decides if it's going to end. But according to Jesus, which he gets his ideas from scripture, it is not the man or the woman who is in charge, but it is God. God, who is the Lord over the relationship, which is why he says when he quotes Genesis that what God has joined together, let no one, or in that culture at least, let no man separate because God is over it, not a man. This is, and so this is a, again, radical concept that, that, is, that is a pressing against what the idea of marriage was in the culture. And so because of that, here is how the disciples respond in verse 10. It says this, when they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. So this is after the fact, they're together and they're asking Jesus and he's trying to further elaborate what he was trying to do. It says this, verse 11, he being Jesus said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, this is pretty intense. What he's saying there is that even if legally they got divorced, it doesn't mean according to God, they should have actually gotten divorced. And so what's happening here is Jesus, again, as he does quite often, he takes his disciples aside and he's explaining in more detail what he was trying to say. And so again, here, even to his disciples, he is saying something that's pretty radical, that just because someone obtains a legal divorce or has legal grounds for divorce, that doesn't mean that the marriage is therefore invalid to God, as if we get to decide when a marriage ends, as if it's only up to us. In other words, to Jesus, and here's what's pretty, you know, pretty crazy in their culture, to Jesus, you can legally divorce and still commit adultery before the Lord for breaking the covenant you made before him. Now, I know that's heavy, so just stick with me here. But this is what Jesus is saying, that you can legally divorce according to the Old Testament law or your understanding of it. You could go through the process and done it right, but yet still commit adultery by divorcing your, in this case, mostly your wife, and then remarrying another woman. 
Now, this is a shocking statement. The implications are shocking. In fact, it's so shocking that in Matthew's account of this exchange, in Matthew 19, when he talks about this, it says that his disciples say this in verse 10. His disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But if you're saying that you can still commit adultery if you legally divorce your wife and get married again, then it's better not to get married at all because adultery is a big deal. Now, perhaps, again, we don't always know the context behind what's going on here. Perhaps this is an overreaction by the disciples in the moment. We don't know. But because they are confronted with the idea that marriage is a covenant that you need to work on, not something that you can get out of when it no longer works for you, this is like gives you some pause before you enter into it. In fact, this is why today we might delay getting married because we don't want to get stuck. What if I get married to the wrong person? I don't want to do that. But in, in this cultural mindset, again, here, here's maybe to better understand how this would have sounded. In this cultural mindset, getting rid of your wife was not much different legally speaking. Of course, there's emotional and psychological. I'm not saying it was easy. But legally speaking, getting rid of your wife or divorcing your wife was not much different than getting rid of a piece of property and replacing it with something something else in this culture, right? It would be like Jesus saying this, anyone who sells his car and buys a new one is guilty of theft. That's kind of like what it's saying. Now for us, and I know that's a different thing, but for analogy, right? Like, what do we think? Well, I have a car for a while. If I don't like it anymore, if it starts breaking down, it's too expensive to fix. I'll sell it, get rid of it and get a new one. What's wrong with that? This was the mindset of many men in the ancient world because they could do so. But Jesus would be saying, that's like being guilty of theft, that you had something, you got rid of it legally, but doesn't mean you actually should have. Now, as I say this, I want to point out some things that are really crucial to understand in this text. Number one, just for clarity's sake, uh, Jesus' purpose here in Mark chapter 10 is to argue the permanence of marriage. That's his goal here. His goal is not to accuse people of committing adultery. Even if this is an implication, we need to understand that his goal here is not to try to call people out to condemn them for their sins. For Jesus, what he is trying to say is that your spouse is not a piece of property, but your own bone and your own flesh, which is what it says in Genesis 1 and 2. That it's not someone that you just discard, but it's something that you you have covenanted with. And so clearly what we see here is that marriage is a big deal to God. And this is what Jesus is trying to get across. It's not about how can we legally get out of it. It's about how has God designed it and how are men and women supposed to react to one another or love one another in marriage. And so that being said, when we try to apply what Jesus is saying here to our context, there's a couple of things we need to understand, okay? So these will be on the screen. If you have the fill in the blank, these are not the fill in the blanks, but just if you want to write them down, you can. I just want to share real quickly uh, four things that we need to understand about the context of what, is, what Jesus is saying so that we can properly apply this to our modern day world. Number one, that Jesus is responding to hostile questioners who are trying to trap him. That's the context of this, right? He is, his answer is directed at bitter opponents whom he has already, already multiple times in the Gospels up until this point, already accused of mishandling Scripture and distorting God's will. So this is not a neutral encounter. This is not someone who is sympathetic. This is someone who is trying to trap Jesus. So, of course, this is going to play in a part to how he responds to them. Second thing we need to understand, that Jesus is presenting God's ideal for marriage. He is not addressing every possible scenario. 
He's talking about the idea. We've talked about this a lot recently, especially at New City Church, that our problem when we have scripture, when we come to scripture in our modern context, is that we can view the Bible as a reference book, as each verse has its own like bullet point on its own. What we need to understand is that this is wisdom literature written to a specific context, to a specific time, and we're trying to understand what is going on, that we need to read the entire story. Uh, Jesus, again, presenting God's ideal for marriage. He's not addressing every possible scenario, which honestly, Honestly, it's frustrating because we have all of our questions, but that's not his goal here. He's just saying this is the ideal. Number three, Jesus uh, is not addressing people contemplating divorce or struggling with a broken marriage. This is not who he's talking to. What his tone, I think he's pretty direct here. Would his tone, would his heart, would his, uh, what he said be different if he was talking to someone who was struggling and had a question? My answer, Absolutely. Now hear me, the truth doesn't change, what is right doesn't change, but what Jesus said and his approach to it would absolutely be different depending on who was coming to him and their motivation for doing so. And then last but not least, just look right at me as I say this, especially if you've experienced divorce. Jesus is not addressing someone who has experienced a divorce. That is not who he's talking to in this text. In other words, because of that, we should not expect to find in this text, at least, instructions on pastoral care or support for people who have been divorced. Again, this is why it's understand to proper, It's important for us to properly engage Scripture, not as a reference book, because we can see a, a verse here or a verse there and say, see, you got divorced or you've committed adultery or how dare you. That's not Jesus' intent. He's not addressing someone who's experienced a divorce. He's addressing people who are trying to trap him, which of course changes what he was going to say, or at least how he is going to say it. And so what this means for us is that all we can do is to think and consider what he might have said in a different situation to different people. Again, the truth does not change, but how he says it and what he said would of course be different depending on who he's actually talking to. And so there's things we don't know here, but, but, but here is what we do know. That in scripture, we do see that there are permissible, or as the Pharisees were saying, there are lawful grounds for divorce. Now, if possible, or generally speaking, we would also encourage reconciliation if that's possible. But there are places in scripture that talks about the allowances for divorce, where it's not sinful, where you have not committed adultery if you remarry. Here, here there, really quickly, in Matthew chapter 19, uh, Jesus mentions adultery, and so do the Old Testament scriptures, that if your spouse commits adultery against you, you can legally divorce. Uh, divorce your spouse and, and you have done nothing wrong. You don't have to. Of course, reconciliation is always the goal, but you could legally, in God's sight, not be in any sin at all, divorce your spouse if they commit adultery. In, in Romans chapter 7, it talks about how if your spouse dies, you can remarry and you have not committed adultery. That one probably makes sense. But even in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul also says this, that if you are a believer and your unbelieving spouse abandons you or abandons the marriage or leaves you, you can also remarry and not be guilty guilty of sin. So explicitly, we really see two things. I mean, if your spouse dies, obviously, but we see adultery and we see abandonment. These are the only explicit mentions we get to when divorce is justified or when divorce is, for, better, or, or, or for lack of a better word, okay. Now, again, one of the big questions we then have is, for example, well, what about divorce, abuse? What about physical or, 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 or verbal or different ways we can, or sexual abuse? Um, here, here's what, 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 what should we do? Well, here's what we should do. We should understand that where the Bible is clear in all aspects, we need to follow when scripture is clear. 
But what about areas where explicit commands are not given? Well, the answer to that is that we should seek wisdom, we should pray, we should read scripture as a whole, we should ask our community of people who are also following Jesus and get their advice. But here's what we, see, we know, that the, the scripture actually doesn't mention abuse at all. However, you could easily argue, I would argue, if we're trying to apply the wisdom principles from scripture, uh, that abusing someone is abandoning the marriage. Abusing someone is doing something that you promise not to do, to love, to care for, to build one another up. If you have abused someone, well, then you are, in, in, in reality, have abandoned the marriage. In fact, just so you know, as a pastor, I have personally counseled people in abusive situations to leave their marriage. And here's what happens, though. When we view the Bible as a reference book, as each individual verse has its own time, here's what happens. If you've been abused and you leave the marriage, what often happens is your abuser accuses you of what? Committing adultery. Accuses you of the one who has done something wrong. Because we don't see a verse for it, because we don't have the reference for it, that is not at all what Jesus would say if he was talking to someone who was abused. If, you, if someone is abusing someone, they are the one who has abandoned what they were actually called to do. Again, if, you, if a spouse is unrepentantly abusive or unrepentantly uh, sleeping around or unrepentantly doing a number of things, it is not the victim's fault ever. And I would say living in abuse is clearly, it is clearly not what God wants for his children. That is not at all what God wants for his children. And so that being said, here's what I know. If you have been divorced, even in a biblical manner, or maybe you've been divorced in an unbiblical manner in, in a country where we have no-fault divorce and you know, irreconcilable differences or whatever and all these sorts of things, you, you, this might be heavy. Whether it was not your fault or maybe there was some fault on your end, and, and, and this all feels really heavy, right? If you've been divorced in any way or you've been, you've been impacted by it, this is heavy. And if you are feeling particularly heavy in this moment, here's what I want to do. I want, there are two times, okay, twice in the Gospels, twice in the New Testament, where Jesus explicitly interacts with someone who has been divorced or who has done something to legally allow a divorce, legally make a divorce happen because of what they've done. What they've done. And again, we don't have all the interactions that Jesus said. We have no interaction where someone who has been divorced is asking Jesus, what should I do? Have I sinned? But we have twice where Jesus interacts with someone who is in that camp. And I just think it is helpful for us to see how Jesus interacted with those people, particularly those women. Okay, I'm going to do this quickly. Number one is in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, it says this. this is a familiar passage to many of you. It says, at dawn, he being Jesus went to the temple again. So at this point, he's in Jerusalem. And all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Now, again, if they're really trying to follow the law of Moses, they would take the man and the woman. But of course, they just take the woman. And it says this in verse 4, Teacher, they said to him, This woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him. Again, this is their intent, in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger, and it says this in verse 7. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. 
verse 8. Then, they, uh, then he stooped down again and continued riding on the ground. We don't know what he was actually riding. And then verse 9. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men, which is just, you know, the older you are, the more you've blown it, the more you screwed up, the more you know that you've done some things. And they get it. And so they start to leave. Only he, being Jesus, was left with the woman at the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Verse 11, no one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin any more. What's happening here? The intent of the crowd was to condemn, not to confront, not to correct, but to condemn. What does Jesus say? There is forgiveness. There is grace. That is sinful, but you have received my mercy to go and sin no more. That you have not committed some unpardonable sin, that you are not some broken thing that no one should interact with again. That's how he, re he reacts to a woman. Here's a second one. In John chapter 4, this one won't be on the screen. It's another well-known story where Jesus is traveling with his disciples. He decides to go through Samaria instead of around it, which is what Jews typically did because Samaritans and Jews hated each other. If we were to put modern language on it, there was probably some intense racism. It's the middle of the day. Uh, they get to this well. Jesus tells his disciples to go find food and all that sort of thing. And he's at the well. This other woman comes to draw water in the middle of the day, which is not what you normally did because it's hot. But she had, had multiple husbands. She had uh, probably was the low of the, the lowest of the low in her community. She's probably trying to avoid other people. As she goes, she sees Jesus there. They start talking, which is kind of a big no-no for a man to talk to, a woman in public with, by themselves, particularly for a Jew to talk to a Samaritan. And Jesus starts talking to her about who he is and how he's the, 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 the living water. And he starts to, you know, she starts start interacting. And then, and then Jesus tells the woman to go get her husband. And what happens? Well, the woman says, I have no husband. And, the, and Jesus says, you're right, you have no husband. In fact, you have been, you've been married, you've had five husbands. And the one you're living with now is not your husband. So she's been married multiple times. We could get into that. We're not going to get into that here this morning. Um, but anyway, it's like this big deal. So she, she's like, you're a prophet. You know all these things. The disciples come back. They're angry. They can't believe Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. And what happens? Well, this Samaritan woman is so blown away by Jesus and who he is that she goes to town, tells these people about Jesus, gets some of them to come back out to this well, and they get Jesus to stay in the town for a few days, and the entire town is transformed. The entire town is transformed by Jesus. And how is that possible? Because God used a woman who the rest of society said, you're trash, you've done all these terrible things, you are the lowest of the low, low, and that is who Jesus used to change an entire town. The woman who has been divorced multiple times over, who is living with a man who currently right now is not her husband. This is who Jesus has used to change the lives and the eternities of an entire town. That's what we see. And so here's what I would do. I'm going to do this pretty quickly. All that being said, if we're to apply some wisdom principles from these texts, here's what I would say this morning as we talk about marriage and divorce. Here's what we see from Jesus and what he says in Mark 10 and how he interacts with those who have been divorced. Number one is this, that marriage is a big deal to God, right? It's just clear. Marriage is a really big deal to God. It is not like our kind of culture today where now it's kind of like the pinnacle, like before you got married, maybe when you were younger, now it's like you go to college or you get the job, you buy the house, you buy the car, and then it's like the capstone, like marriage is like the last thing you do. That's not how it's looked at. It's a big deal to God, and you can legally be divorced and not divorced in the eyes of God. 
This no-fault divorce, this irreconcilable differences, and I'm not trying to downplay the difficulties of divorce. I get it. But you can divorce according to the law and not have divorce in a biblical manner. Marriage is a big deal to God. That's what Jesus is ultimately getting at. We also see that marriage was created for a man and a woman as co-equal partners. We talked a lot about this last week. Again, this was a radical idea in the ancient world. It's not just about the man doing whatever he wants because he can legally, but they are co-equal partners loving and serving one another. They're on equal playing field. Number three, we see this. Divorce is not God's desire But there are biblical allowances for it in some circumstances. Even though it's not God's desire, if there has been adultery or abuse or abandonment, and you can kind of talk about it, I think every situation is a little bit unique. Like, is this marriage falling under those categories or not? But there are times where a divorce can happen, and hear me, should happen. And it's not the fault of the person seeking the divorce. There are biblical grounds for it in some circumstances. What we also need to understand is this, that divorce is not an unpardonable sin. It's not. I know it can feel heavy, and I know it's very, the the hard thing about divorce is very public, so we can struggle with a lot of sins secretly that not many people see, but divorce is just everybody sees it, and everybody knows it. But it is not the unpardonable sin. If you have been unbiblically divorced, it does not mean you are some terrible person that God no longer loves. In fact, we say this in our Discover class. We'll say this if you're sticking around here after service today. Here's what we say, that ultimately, we want our people to know that marriage is created by God and it matters to God. And so it must matter to us as well. It's a big deal. But we also need to know this, that all of us, absolutely all of us are sinners in the need of grace. And so if you entered into your current marriage or uh, divorced your previous marriage in an unbiblical manner and got remarried, it is very clear that God wants you to stay married and that your current marriage is not somehow less important or less legitimate than anyone else's, right? Divorce is not an unpardonable sin. We also say this, and this one might be the most controversial, although I don't think it is if you look at scripture from a wisdom standpoint, that how you stay married is more important than staying married. How you stay married is more important than staying married. In other words, you can be married and still dishonor God with your marriage. The goal is not to be like, well, I got, I died, Lord, I lived my life. I was married for 47 years. I was a good husband. I was a good wife. I never got divorced but I didn't care for my spouse. I didn't love my spouse. I never served my spouse. I'm just trying to check the box of not getting divorced, but not actually loving and caring for my spouse the way that God wants me to do so. How you stay married, I would argue, is more important, especially when we looked at last week, Ephesians 5, how it reflects the gospel, how God loves us and gave his life for us. How you stay married is more important than just staying married so that you can check a box. And last but not least, for all of us, married, divorced, not married, single, here's what we need to understand, that Jesus will never divorce his bride. This is part of why it talks about in Ephesians 5, how marriage is a reflection of the gospel that Jesus covenants with us, that he does not leave us. He does not forsake us no matter what we have done, no matter what we may do. It says this, we read it last week, but I'll say it one more time. In Ephesians 5, verse 28, it starts by saying this, in the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it. Just as Christ uh, uh, cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, just as Christ does for those that follow him, since we are members of his body. For this reason, again, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. See, here's the gospel. 
that Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, that he laid down his life willingly, uh, not because it was fun, not because dying was awesome and being ridiculed and condemned was great, but because he loved us so much that he wanted to make it possible for us to experience the goodness of God. What the gospel shows us again is that Jesus will never divorce us, that Jesus will never walk away from us. When we blow it, when we sin, when we've done these terrible things and we think God should give up on us, what does Jesus say? No, I have covenanted, I have committed myself to you. That even when you fall short, I am there. Even when you sin, I am there. Even when you have blown it, I have not turned my back on you. My grace abounds. And so for us this morning, again, marriage, divorce, or maybe something else that is going on in your life, you just need to remember that Jesus will not turn his back on you. That Jesus has not abandoned you. That while marriage is a big deal, so is God's covenant to us. That anyone, that any person, no matter who you are, what you've done, what you've looked like, or what has been done to you, can experience the grace, the mercy, and the forgiveness of God. Just like the woman caught in adultery, Jesus says to us the same thing that he says to her. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's the God we serve.